You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus tonight. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus tonight. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus tonight. Amen. Well, it is always a joy to be back in the city of my birth where I get a name like Ashley. I have been asked to speak on the essential truths from the Anglican formularies, the prayer book, articles, and homilies. And what I would like to do for you is to go over briefly what those formularies are and then look at what they consider essential for the Christian life. And it will be no great surprise that for them, Scripture is the source of truth and life. And we'll look at how it understands Scripture's function in our lives. And then what is the role of the church versus Scripture? Uh, And uh, that, as always, is a very timely topic. So without further ado, let's get in to the 16th century. Only the accession of the nine-year-old Edward VI on January 28, 1547, did the Church of England turn decisively Protestant. Henry VIII broke away from Rome in 1534, and he was willing to make some changes in uh, medieval theology. In particular, he had a grudge against clergy and the Pope. Uh, but on the e- crucial issue of how one is saved, he really, 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 really liked the idea that if you rebelled against the king, that was a bad work and you went to hell. And he wanted works as included as the basis of salvation. But with the accession of his son, it's a completely different situation. One might wonder why Henry VIII would would pack the Regency Council for his son with known evangelicals, with known Protestants. Um, It's debated my personal view. What do you think Henry thinks is the greatest accomplishment of his life? Driving out the Pope, recovering the church lands, restoring, in his view, the divine given responsibility and authority of kings to direct the church. And he had the good sense to realize that between the two factions of his country, it was going to be the Protestants who would keep the Pope out, not the traditionalists. And when Mary comes to the throne, she doesn't restore Henry's church. She brings back the Pope. So with the ascension accession of the boy king, we now have for the first time a thorough root and branch Protestant Reformation promoted by the government 
in England. Cramner has six and a half years to work hard to produce a new Protestant blueprint for the Church of England. What's his first major change? It's a required book of homilies, of sermons. Twelve sermons that were to be read in order over and over and over again throughout his Edward's reign. It was to inculcate in people's hearts Protestant teaching. You may have heard that in Anglicanism, uh, praying shapes believing. That's a more of a 17th century notion. It's only two-thirds accurate for Cramner's day, for Cramner preaching and praying, shape believing. And for him, the Book of Homilies and the Book of Common Prayer was a Galilean wedding garment. Does anyone remember what was so special about a Galilean wedding garment? It was seamless. Two books for worship. Then he pins, after the Book of Homilies in July of 1547, an increasingly more Protestant Book of Common Prayer. What are the dates of our two prayer books under Edward? 1549 and... 1552. The first begins to, to make substantial changes. There, first of all, the liturgy is in English and institutionalized systematic reading of scripture and the institution of a morning and evening prayer service so that the people could begin and end their day by contemplating God's word and that the spirit would go through God's word beginning to draw the hearts of his people uh, to, to God and to one another. He also removed all references to personal merit. He did not believe that God made us worthy of his love. Cranmer had this really outrageous notion that it was the glory of God to love the unworthy. Isn't that very different from us? And isn't that good news? Therefore, he also emphasizes uh, in the Holy Communion a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, trying to make clear that what happened at the cross vis-a-vis Jesus was a full, perfect, insufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world once offered. Did you get the message? How many times did he repeat it in that phrase? Next year, Cranmer adds the ordinal, which is revised liturgies for the making and consecrating of archbishops, bishops, priests, and deacons. And these emphasize the importance of clergy with uh, being disseminators of scripture. And in 1552, he makes even more Protestant changes radical changes um, that emphasize uh, with clarity that communion is what? 1549, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is broken for you, preserve your body and soul. Do those words sound familiar? 
1552, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed upon him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Where is the supernatural miracle in, in Holy Communion according to 1552? In the heart, not in the hand. We know both of those because in 1559, Elizabeth combines them. And that's been, been a part of our tradition ever since. But Cramner in 1552 makes increasingly more clearly Protestant prayer book. Then finally, Cramner draws up an official statement of theological beliefs called the Articles of Religion. His version of the Articles of Religion have 42. So they're called the 42 Articles of Religion. What, how many, how many articles are y'all familiar with? 39. Well, we need to talk about how they went from 42 to 39. Upon Edward's death in 1553, his Roman Catholic sister Mary becomes queen, and true to her deep convictions, she restores the Church of England back unto the authority of the Pope and his teachings. In the process, she persecutes Protestants, including, have, including having Cramner burned at the stake. Uh, Mary kills almost 300 people in five years. Elizabeth will kill the same number, but over 40 years. And hers will be political executions because Catholic Jesuit missionaries have, uh, the Pope has declared that Queen Elizabeth is not the legitimate ruler. So whereas uh, uh, Mary's martyrs are burned uh, under Elizabeth, they are uh, with the grisly uh, fate of a traitor, which is to be hung, drawn, and then quartered. Um, and because this is the South and we have ladies, I won't go into detail, but it is as gruesome as it sounds. When Mary dies, her Elizabeth her sister Elizabeth comes to the throne. How? What is one of Elizabeth's biggest drawbacks in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church? She's illegitimate. Why is she illegitimate? Catherine of Aragon was still living when Elizabeth was born. Edward, she, she had already died when Henry VIII married Edward Jane Seymour, so there was no doubt about Edward's legitimacy. But Elizabeth was the product in the Roman Catholic Church's view of Henry's mistress. Um, so uh, uh, Elizabeth restores the Protestant Church of Edward, but she does it in a different fashion. One has to understand that every Tudor monarch until Elizabeth sees that the best way to improve society is to reform the church. So Henry VII and his mother, Lady Margaret Barford, encourage Roman Catholic human studies, the revival of biblical teaching, of biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, an emphasis on morality, and getting people to do their duty. Henry VIII decides the best way to improve society is to reform the church by kicking the Pope out. 
Edward thinks the best way to reform the church is by bringing, to, to improve society, is to bring in uh, a Protestant faith. Mary thinks the best way to improve society is to bring back the Pope. Because whose job is it to help people live together better? It's the church's job, right? Elizabeth has decided that the church has become too divisive. So she brings back Edward's church, but it's only a backdrop. She then begins to solidify society by the cult of the Virgin Queen and the arts and an English Renaissance. And she doesn't want any change in her brother's settlement, which causes problems because the reformed movement of Edward's time has increasingly found new ways to improve the church. And these folks who be called Puritan look at Elizabeth's church as only half reformed. But she does restore Edward's prayer book and her bishops uh, revised the 42 articles into 39 articles and they issue a second book of homilies of required preaching. And these documents form the foundation of the 16th century Protestant Church of England. And they are still the official formularies of the church, although Anglicanism has developed in different directions since the 16th century, and other folks add to these documents things that help them understand Anglicanism and its development. I'm a specialist in the 16th century, and I think that its understanding of the gospel is a very powerful uh, um, message and that one needs not be ashamed to say that you are reformational and Anglican together. And what we're going to be looking at tonight is what do these documents tell us about what it means to be a Christian and how should the church support and further uh, biblical Christians? Does that sound something like you'd be interested in learning? Okay. The first thing he wants to emphasize in the formularies is that the revelation of salvation comes from Jesus. Now, this is a, that sounds pretty obvious, right? But not really think about it. The church has often thought that there may be other streams by which we can get divine relation, revelation of who God is. For instance, the Pope in, in the 20th century declares that if, for a Catholic to be saved, they have to believe that, that Mary was bodily ascended into heaven. Now, does that contradict scripture? The Bible doesn't talk about Mary's death at all. So it doesn't contradict it. But is it in it? No. The reformers are saying that the church, because of its confidence to hear the Holy Spirit, in addition to what the apostles wrote, were beginning to believe things 
visions and all sorts of teachings like purgatory that were going away from the gospel and that we had to be ruthlessly honest that the only thing that we need for salvation, Jesus has shown us. And the apostles have witnessed to Jesus' teaching on salvation. So not only when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, meaning that his death covers our sins, he has also revealed what we need to his followers, the uh, the apostles, so that we know what is true. Therefore, the homily on the misery of mankind says, in Christ alone are all the treasures and the wisdom and the knowledge of God hidden. Since saving truth was found in Jesus alone, Article 7 of the 39 Articles states that both the Old and New Testament uh, there you find everlasting life as it is offered to mankind by Jesus Christ. The homily of faith explains that although the men of the Old Testament discussed by Paul in Hebrews 11 were not named Christian men, yet it was a Christian faith they had for they looked for all the benefits of God the Father through the merits of his son Jesus Christ as we now do. This is the difference between us and them, for they looked when Christ should come, and we be in time when he is come. Therefore, St. Augustine says, the time is altered, but not the faith. That the Old and New Testament, the Psalms, all talk about Jesus, and they reveal to us the way of salvation through faith in Jesus. Since both Testaments point to Christ, the homily on Scripture says that he can, it can use such words as the words of Holy Scripture, this word of God, this word of Christ, interchangeably. These are, the words of Scripture are divine words. They're what Christ has left us for a sure and certain knowledge of what is true. Have you noticed that some things are debated today and people aren't sure what is necessarily right or wrong. And where does that stem from? Well, the first step is to say Scripture alone isn't a sufficient guide to understanding the way of salvation. Well, that's exactly what the Reformers thought they were fighting, which is why they founded the Church of England on a different precept, which is the word of God is sufficient to make clear not only what draws us to God, what we should believe, but what draws us away from God, what we should avoid. As Cramner says in his private papers, if we can't trust scripture to give us certitude on what is right or wrong, then how would we ever know anything? We could end up in the synagogue of Satan and not realize it. Therefore, in the homily on salvation, 
He wants his followers, he wants the Church of England to rely on no other source of revelation. Quote, let us diligently search for the well of life in the books of the New and Old Testament and not run to stinking puddles of men's traditions devised by man's imagination for our justification and salvation. Anyone ever seen those beautiful, wonderful old wooden Tudor houses that kind of uh, uh, lean out over the street? Do you know why they lean out over the street? So they can open the windows and they can throw the contents of the chamber pots out in the window into the street. And when they've done that, do you know what they have just formed? Stinking puddles. That's literally what Cramner is calling human ideas about what salvation is. One of my favorite bumper stickers is, do not believe everything you think. <laughs> Therefore, on the one hand, the Bible's content is comprehensive in matters of saving truth. All you need to know how to draw close to God and away from sin, all of that is in the Bible. Quote, for in Holy Scripture is fully contained what we ought to do and what we ought to avoid, what to believe, what to love, what to look for at God's hand at length. On the other hand, the Bible is unique. There is no other complete comprehensive source for salvation other than Scripture. Quote, Therefore, as many as be desirous to enter into the right and perfect way unto God must apply their minds to know Holy Scripture, without the which they can neither sufficiently know God and his will, neither their office and duty. For only in the light of Scripture did people realize both their offenses against God and the misery such sin brings. Have you heard this phrase on Sundays? that we are miserable sinners. Now, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that that self-flagellation, that we're shaming ourselves, and if we shame ourselves and hate ourselves enough because of our sins, then that painful emotional self-abuse will be meritorious in God's eyes, so he will forgive us. So we have to abase ourselves and grovel as a way to earn God's forgiveness. That's actually the very medieval concept that Cramner is rejecting. When he says miserable sinners, he's trying to help put you in touch with the reality that sin makes you miserable. What's the first comfortable word? Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Sin is a burden because it cuts us off from God and from one another and from our own true selves. It produces a restlessness. A heaviness. 
And therefore, it's only by reading scripture that we begin to understand the root cause of our ills. What's that wonderful Cramnerian phrase? We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have listened to the stinking puddles of our own imagination, thinking that we can find a way out of our situation only to entangle ourselves ever deeper. We need Jesus to come and to complete God's saving revelation so that we can begin to know how to get home. Scripture as the way of salvation, that's the most essential thing that the Anglican formularies convey. Only in the light of Scripture do we know God, how good he is of himself, and how he communicateth his goodness unto us and to all creatures. You know what the number one question I'm asked in the Olympic Village by Christian athletes who don't meet their, their, their sport performance goals? What did I do wrong? Because we have <coughs> this spiritual anxiety. If you have lived long enough, you will have experienced in your moments of selfishness hurting deeply those closest to you. You know that you cause hurt and harm. How in the world can you think a God who is supposed to be loving and wants goodness to flow in the world, how can you think he longs to be good to you? The only hope we have that in the face of our unworthiness that God would seek to embrace us and love us despite our waywardness, that comes from not our imagination, but from the promises of God written in scripture, written in blood on the cross. Without hearing again and again the promises of scripture, we will never imagine in our longest, our wildest dreams that God longs to bless us, to use his creativity and love to find ways in the midst of all our good and bad decisions to come and bring goodness in our lives. Thank God for scripture. To prove the sufficiency of scripture in doctrinal matters, the homily on scripture quotes St. John Chrysostom at length. And this is a very important quotation, which you will often hear cited in brief. Whatsoever is required to salvation of man is fully contained in the scripture of God. 
It shall require to teach any truth or reprove any false doctrine, to rebuke any vice or to commend any virtue, to give good counsel, to comfort or to exhort or to do anything else required for our salvation. All those things we may learn plentiful of scripture. That's a church father and that's in the homily on scripture. Cranmer then takes that and uses it as Article 6 of the 39 Articles. You may have heard it. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or may be required to salvation. Scripture alone, because it's certain and sure and brings to us the good news of a loving God. Guess what then it says about the bishops and ministers? A bishop is asked, are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain sufficiently all doctrine required of necessity for eternal salvation, that through faith in Jesus Christ, Are you determined that these said scriptures are to be instructed to the people committed to your charge and to teach nothing but that you shall be persuaded may be concluded and proved by scripture? All the historic texts of Anglicanism, the homilies, the articles, and the prayer book affirm that life, truth, salvation, sustaining God's sustaining presence comes to us through scripture. Well, if scripture is the source by which we receive knowledge of God, perhaps it would be helpful if we had some help learning to read scripture. How do you know if I have bad breath? If I speak to you, with my words goes what? My breath. And therefore, the Protestant reformers have a very basic principle. With God's word goes God's spirit. And it will illuminate scripture and then take the truths from here and write them here. You also say the Ten Commandments, right? What's the last response to the Ten Commandments? Write all these thy laws in our hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And guess what is said um, when... uh, It's come times for the prayer of confirmation. The minister asks God uh, that strengthen them, we beseech thee, O Lord, with the Holy Ghost and the Comforter, and daily increase in them thy manifold gifts of grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and godly strength, the spirit of knowledge and true wisdom. But you know, have you noticed 
that just because you know something's right doesn't empower you necessarily to do it. Have you ever, when they've never done something wrong to you and you know you're supposed to forgive, but you have absolutely no desire to forgive? What you have a desire for is for revenge or at least public shaming of them to get even? What do you do? According to the homily on the misery of mankind, St. Paul in many places painteth us out in our colors that we cannot think a good thought of ourselves, much less can we say well or do well of ourselves. Article 10 says, We have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ going before us that we may have a good will and working with us that we may have that good will. Does anyone know what scripture verse they're referring to when they say that? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Anyone want to be brave and bold and read out Philippians 2, 12 for us? Okay, why don't I do it? Go for it. Sorry? Philippians 2.12. Doesn't that sound like sweat equity? Fear and trembling make good decisions? Like we have to contribute something to our progress in the Christian life, right? Isn't it true that we are not puppets? None of us make progress in the Christian life without making good decisions. And sometimes it's a battle to make those good decisions. And without them, we don't go forward. But the question is, where do we get the willpower to make those good decisions? Verse 13. Oh, I'm still, I'm still on? Sorry. Yes. 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, so the willpower that I use to make good decisions isn't because I'm such a righteous, holy dude, but because God has been at work in me, changing my desires and enabling me, drawing me closer to him and to him, through him to my true self, to my true desires that he has given us in our creation and enabling us to do what's right. So therefore, if you're being tempted and saying, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't die, you've already lost. The law of sin and death at work in your members will be stronger than your mental decision 
to say no. Let's pretend I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger 40 years ago. And this is a 100-pound weight. Can I keep this out for a day? Why not? The law of gravity, right? Can I see it? Will it win? Yeah. The law of sin and death working our members will always be stronger than our own mental decision to say no. It's not should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't die. Lord, you know I want to, but you have promised to change me. Lord, you have promised to be at work in me, to give me the power to do according to your pleasure. Lord, you have promised that you will complete the good work you have begun in me. You have promised to present me spotless. You have promised to strengthen me in my weakness. Holiness is ever-increasing dependence on Christ's promises to be effectual in the midst of our struggles. And as I said this morning, the depressing thing about this is when you make these good choices and you find a new dimension to your life, then what does the Lord do? He shows you you've been looking at foothills. And he shows you the mountains of your self-centeredness that in his mercy he has not shown you lest you have complete despair. And he has loved you despite all of that and saying... Let's go deeper. Sanctification is an onion layer skin at a time. And for me, the test of sanctification is not whether I'm getting holier, but whether I am realizing how much more work God has to do in me than I have ever stood before. Because the truth is, you must grow more like God to know how unlike God you are. But you know what? That teaching is straight out of the Book of Common Prayer. All Christians are made mindful of their complete dependence on the Holy Spirit for personal holiness at their confirmation. My good child, know this, that thou art not able to walk in the commandments of God and to serve him without his special grace, which thou must learn in all times to call for by diligent prayer. Every priest, priest was reminded of the same admonition at his ordination. You cannot have a mind and a will to do right before God and man of yourselves, for that power and ability is given of God alone. Therefore you see how ye ought and have need earnestly to pray for his Holy Spirit. Accordingly, the petition for supernatural assistance to think rightly and to act accordingly runs as a red thread through Cranmer's colics in the Book of Common Prayer. Grant that they may per both perceive and know what things they ought to do and also have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. Colic from the first Sunday after Epiphany. We beseech thee that as by thy special grace going before us, thou dost put in our minds good desires. So by thy continual help, 
we may bring them same to good effect. The Collect for Easter Day. Grant us, thy humble servants, that by thy holy inspiration we may think those things that be good, and by thy merciful guiding may perform the same. The Collect for the fifth Sunday after Easter. Grant to us, Lord, we beseech thee, the Spirit to think and do always such things as be rightful, that we, which cannot be without thee, may by thee be able to live according to thy will. The Collect for the ninth Sunday after Trinity. Vouchsafe, we beseech thee to direct sanctify and govern both our hearts and minds in the ways of thy laws and the works of thy commandments, a collect of anti-communion. Yet Cranmer did not think prayer alone was the divinely appointed means for seeking the transforming power of God. We said that preaching and prayer shape believing. Therefore, And the homily of scripture makes clear the Bible not only teaches us what is true, it also turns our hearts to believe it. The Bible teaches and turns. The words of Holy Scripture be called words of everlasting life, for they be God's instrument ordained for the same purpose. They have power to convert through God's promise, and they be effectual through God's assistance, and being received in a faithful heart, they have an ever heavenly spiritual working in them. For those who would, quote, ruminate and chew the cud, God work through the regular repetition of biblical truths not only to engraft in them saving faith, but the transforming power of his love out of which everything flows. Cramner said it best, writing to Henry VIII in 1538, trying to convince him to become a Protestant, which Henry kindly, kindly declines. Cramner writes, if the profession of our faith of the remission of our sins enters within to the deepness of our hearts that it must kindle a warm fire of love in our hearts towards God and towards all others for the love of God. A firm mind to seek and procure God's honor, will, and pleasure in all things. A good will and mind to help every man to do good unto them so far as our might, wisdom, learning, counsel, health, strength, and all other gifts which we have received will extend. In short, a firm intent and purpose to do all that is good and leave all that is evil. Does anyone want to know the secret to stop sinning? How much will you pay me for? (laughs) It's very simple. Love God more. Right? Fear, shame, guilt, and duty. We try to use those to get us to do right, to get our children to do right. What is the only motivation that stands the test of time? If you have 
been blessed and worked hard at having a good marriage. You learn very quickly that guilt, shame, fear, and duty don't get, do not move your spouse to forgive you. Sure, they should. It is their duty. They've taken vows. And the fear of you uh, what motivates them to forgive you? Love. That's the strongest, most powerful, long-lasting human motivation. Well, how do we cultivate a love for God rather than the love of the things of this world. That is, in essence, the money question, isn't it? The reformers say, basically, there's only one way to cultivate a love for God that's stronger than our desire for self-gratification. And that is to meditate on the self-sacrificing love of God for us, that when we truly begin to understand his deep love for us, we will be drawn to love him. Has anyone seen the book, The Notebook, the movie, or read the book? <clears throat> it's a powerful story of an older man reading to an older woman from a, be- a battered notebook. And um, it's a great love story between two young people. And every so often the older man asks, should he stop? Because she's in, a, in an assistant living facility and she clearly she has some, some mental issues. And she always is intrigued enough to go on. And as it gets a little further into the story, we, even we begin to figure out that it's not just any love story, but it's their love story, which she has written down, and he's reading it to her, hoping that it will strike a chord deeper than her Alzheimer's and awaken her memories and bring bring her back to him. And the poignant moment comes where her eyes twinkle and she says, how long do we have? And he said, five minutes last time. And she says, hold me. And you have the picture of paradise regained within Less than a minute, she then screams, who is this man who's holding me in paradise lost? We suffer from spiritual Alzheimer's. We go in and out in remembering the great truths of God's self-sacrificing love for us and that he longs to be good to us. And as we meditate on scripture, 
over and over again that pushes back our Alzheimer's and we get glimpses of who he is, who we are, and who we are together because he is in us. And therefore the reformers felt that the duty of the church was to proclaim this word and to be a guardian, a keeper of it, to make sure that barnacles didn't come and obscure its saving message, that we could have a faith that begins in a love rooted in us because of trusting the promises of God that come from hearing them over and over how much we are loved. I pray that uh, the Advent continue to find the vision, strength, um, and resiliency to proclaim the biblical message of God's redeeming love for all and to enrich your lives by being an instrument through which the word comes and quickens that love in you and you find your place, your calling, your community of people to love and serve and that this church continue to be a light in this town and beyond for the transforming power of the saving message of the gospel revealed and sustained by Jesus Christ. Amen. Questions, comments? Um, I we have some time, I believe. Would you mind recapping the story of the bear and the fact that you told me this morning that you had that manuscript? Yes. What, what would you? Just, I guess. Retell the story. Well, I. No, do you want me to? Yeah, just a quick. Uh, take 30 seconds, really. Not the way I tell it, but yeah, it should. <laughs> but I guess the idea that you are a researcher and that you have been given that essentially as a gift, and all gifts come from God. Just, uh... um, there's a wonderful story from 1539 where Cramner's private secretary uh, has been instructed by Cramner to write up in a manuscript uh, Cramner's arguments against the Act of Six Articles. The Act of Six Articles is the beginning of Henry turning away from uh, his even tentative support for Protestant ideas to a much more harsh traditionalist approach. But Cranmer had opposed the, these articles in Parliament and the king had asked him to write these down for his further study. So he uh, has his secretary write them out. Basically, you know, typing the 16th century equivalent of typing it up. <clears throat> this is such a important 
document that should not fall into the wrong hands. When he has to go into London, he doesn't want to even leave it in his chamber in Lambeth Palace. He doesn't think even that's secure. So he puts it under his tunic and gets in the boat, because back in those days, if you ever seen Shakespeare in Love, you see all the boats on the river. That's the normal way. He gets in one of those. And as he's going along, he gets in a, in a throng of boats and he's stuck. And at just that moment on the other bank, there is bear baiting entertainment. Well, you know, where they, you know, poke a bear and watch him growl. And, you know, blood sports were, you know, kind of popular in 16th century England. And some say they go on today, especially for Theresa May. But um, <laughs> the bear breaks the iron chain and jumps in the water trying to escape his tormentors and comes straight for Ralph Morris's boat. And the other guys jump ship. Ralph is just kind of stuck and stays in one place. And, and, and as John Fox says, the bear, as if looking for aid and succor, come up to him like this. And he then tries to turn out of the bear's way. And as he does that, this super secret manuscript floats away and he can watch it floating on the water. Now, this is going to sound made up because it's too good to be true. It sounds like Disney. But guess what happens? This is right. The bear baiter reaches down and picks it up. But it's in Latin. But there just so happens to be standing by him a traditional Catholic priest. What's, it, what's this say about traditional Catholic priests? Taste and entertainment. That's another story. But anyway, he picks it up and he can read it. And he instantly recognizes the importance of this. And so he refuses to give it back to Morris. And he's going to go and give it to Stephen Gardner, Crabner's chief opponent, and try to cause mischief. Well, well in the end, um, um, uh, Morris has the good sense to go to Thomas Cromwell. Anyone read Wolf Hall? Cromwell is not a man to be messed with, and he basically browbeats uh, the bear warder to give the document back, and then Cramner hands the soggy thing and says, go recopy it. And that's the end of the story. Except that in describing this document, it describes that the document is read, is written out in three parts. First, scripture then doctors, i.e. patristic authorities, one might say tradition, and at last arguments, one might say reason. Scripture, tradition, and reason. This is the first instance that I have found of an official document incorporating what becomes known as the Anglican Theological Triad. What is interesting is that I have I work, I edit Cramer's private papers for Oxford University Press. And I'm working on the volume on scripture right now. And looking through his private papers, I have been able to actually identify this long lost brief, uh, which has very helpful shedding light on what, what were Cramer's arguments in Parliament. We, we don't know, but now we actually have the document that is in so many things has been hiding in plain sight.
They just haven't been examined thoroughly enough to be able to recognize what they are. Is that what you wanted me to say? Can you clarify a little bit? You, you mentioned scripture, tradition, and reason. And what we hear in the 21st century is that that's the, the, the three authorities for Anglican interpretation of doctrine, each of equal weight and equal authority. Because uh, it's a three-legged stool, right? And the, Um, <clears throat> have, has what I said about scripture and the formularies, does that line up with the idea that scripture, tradition, and reason each have equal weight? No. Not at all. If you look at how Cramner uses scripture, tradition, and reason, what he does is say, what does scripture say? And let's, um, compare scripture to scripture, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. Anybody have a Thompson chain reference? What is a Thompson chain reference? It's saying you interpret the more difficult passages on a specific theme by the more clear passages. So let's figure out all the passages that talk about grace. And let's compare them. And through that, we'll begin to build up a biblical theology of what grace means. Now, um, if I'm going to compare two passages, what do I have to use? Right? There's no other way. But how am I using my mind? Am I using my mind to come up with my own ideas or am I using my mind to see what ideas are there? For Cramner, scripture interprets scripture. But we're human beings and we can get things wrong. So are we the first persons who've ever read the Bible? No. Maybe we should look at what other people have said. Now, if they're human beings, does that mean they can get it right? Yeah. If it's human beings, does that mean they can get it wrong? Yeah. So we don't go and look at tradition to say we're going to try to find a consensus as if the Bible is to be read through a sieve of what human beings have said about it. That's not Cramner. But if I come up with what I think is a biblical idea and nobody has ever thought of it, I should be deeply worried that perhaps I have not collated those passages well. There's a, in <clears throat> 1540, one of the most powerful political reformation leaders in Germany, well, he had a, a political marriage, as was standard, but he had a notorious problem. He would make Harvey Weinstein seem to be a saint. And this caused him pain and everybody else's. And so what do you do? Well, they thought that the most helpful thing was for him to pick a beautiful mistress that might, shall we say, attract his attentions to one person. But he's already married. Well, didn't the patriarchs have more than one wife? And so uh, 
it's a it's a bit complicated, but in essence, Luther, Melanchthon, and Bootser, in one form or another, acquiesced to this marriage. And when Cramner finds out about it, he says, "My." Gosh, you're absolutely crazy. There's no way you can justify an interpretation of scripture uh, to support this because nothing in the entire history of the church has ever said anything like this. But because the patriarchs had more than one spouse, that we can too. Tradition is a guide to help see whether we have understood scripture correctly. It does. It is not a superior authority by looking through it to the Bible. And lastly, reason. Um, there's something called the Enlightenment, right? And in the Enlightenment, reason is considered autonomous. That means in and of itself, it can think things clearly. Now, anyone, can you help me with the math? The Enlightenment is in the 18th century, right? The Reformation's in the 16th century. Which comes first? The Reformation? So if I'm taking an 18th century definition of reason and putting it back on Cramner and Hooker, is that valid? No. They understand human reason like everything else in us, distorted. What do we hear? The devices and desires of our own... Um, Hearts, the stinking puddles of men's imaginations? No, no, no. For them, reason is shaped by looking at what Scripture says, and then you can deduce things. Is the Trinity explicitly in Scripture? Is there a verse that says, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one? Where do we get the doctrine of the Trinity from? Did we make it up ourselves? We carefully collated Scripture and deduced from the full witness of Scripture the doctrine of the Trinity. That is theological reasoning guided by Scripture. Now, let's be honest. If you're a Platonist, it doesn't make any reasonable sense. And many people don't believe in the divinity of Jesus today because it doesn't make any sense. If reason is an autonomous thing, that sheer logic like Spock, you come from things. But if it's trying to reason what scripture says, then it is the most faithful uh, explanation of the biblical teaching. So that's what the original scripture tradition and reason met. Is that helpful, Andrew? What I like to say is it's not a three-legged stool. It's a garden bed. Scripture is a garden bed. But anyone garden? Doesn't it get irritating that sometimes you have these lumps, these clods? What do you do? You break them up, right? You use spades. And when they're broken up, then the nutrients in the clods can help the soil, right? Would you plant your petunias in the handle of your spade? Why not? For Cramner, you don't plant doctrine in reason. 
you use reason to unlock the nutrients in scripture. You use tradition to guide your trying to aerate the soil. But the basis of saving revelation is in scripture alone. Tradition and reason are simply tools to unlock those nutrients. And those are complete uh, tools and nutrients are completely different levels. Do we have... Go ahead. Okay. Is the prayer book currently being revised? There, um, it, there is much discussion moving towards that. I'm not actually um, sure whether the Convention has authorized a revision or what they're hoping to do uh, at the next General Convention is authorize the revision, but it is coming. The 79 prayer book has already done grievous harm because they added the phrase historical documents, meaning no longer necessarily applicable. And they put other documents in with them, saying that this is just one of the sources from where we have come, as opposed to just like these prayers we must say, these articles we must believe. The 79 prayer book already got rid of that. I would hope they would still include them, but I wouldn't be surprised. But it doesn't matter because they've already relativized them. Um, beyond, so beyond the triad becoming equal legs of the school, uh, what other things happened early in the history of the church that have sort of planted There is a fundamental divide between whether you see Jesus came to preach a message that had the power to form a community or whether Jesus came to institute an institution which would then proclaim a message. The more Roman Catholic model is that Jesus came to found an institution and endowed that institution with the Holy Spirit so it can continually uh, uh, give messages. The reformers, after a thousand years of little by little of those messages deviating from scripture, uh, whereas the bodily assumption of the Virgin Mary doesn't necessarily contradict scripture, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, in terms of some of its practices, was deemed to be in direct conflict with scripture, and that therefore there had to be a, 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 a cutting away and a recovery of scripture. And they did that by saying the message doesn't change, only the packaging to, to the current 
community. That was a powerful argument as long as people respected the Bible as a supernatural document through which they could get supernatural wisdom and revelation. The 19th century, it attacked the authority of scripture on several different levels. It had miracles, but no one in the 19th century saw those miracles. They questioned of the whole notion of evolution. You now have an alternative explanation uh, for uh, uh, the, uh, the, the world of nature. Um, and uh, I'm not sure you are aware, but traditional Mormon men wear a special kind of underwear and they're not supposed to depart, depart from that underwear. And really fundamentalist Mormon men will actually, even when they bathe, have a piece of that underwear touching their skin at all times. Why would anyone think that as being an act of holiness? Because they read it in a book. Let's be honest. Why would anyone who was starting from autonomous reason and logic think the execution of a failed rabbi in Palestine, that his death, that his blood would atone for the sins of the world? And to make things more specific, that he alone is the pathway to God. Surely shouldn't we be looking for, for a universal uh, peace and harmony based on principles that we can all agree on and religion, especially Christian religion, is highly particular. And therefore there's a, a movement to uh, see the Bible as a book like any other book. And uh, to see Christianity as a way of many ways to God. But the minute you say that, there must be some kind of super way to God, condensed way, that all religions must agree on. And therefore, if we're looking for truth, we must look beyond this external stuff to to comparing religions and singing blah, 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 blah. blah. And then all of a sudden... Well, what then is the role of the church? If we can't rely on the Bible, what model do we have to create a message for our day? We have the Roman model, right? That the Holy Spirit fills the community and it will lead that community into all truth. So the Episcopal Church has picked up this notion that if we can't trust scripture to provide the answers for all of these problems, we as a community can rely on the Holy Spirit in us to lead us into all things. 
And um, what is the mantra one hears in the Episcopal Church? The Spirit is doing a new thing. Sorry? That's where it's coming from. It's the ironic thing is it's not it's not Hitler kind of mendacious evil seeking to deceive people. It's good intentioned uh, folks who are trying to be loving and are trying to get a direction of how to have a positive impact on society. Many of them are veterans of the civil rights movement and seeing the concrete difference and change in society uh, that was made by making social changes and wanting to continue that kind of progress. But because they don't have confidence in scripture, they are then left only with the community discerning a way forward, and they don't realize that they're following the devices and desires of their own hearts because they think they're following the Spirit. And what's the only way we know they're not? Because we're such righteous and holy people that we instantly know what's right? Because Christ has shown us in Scripture the way and our only hope is to trust him because we are wayward and we create God in our own image that this reading scripture constantly cuts through and reminds us of the truth. And that's why helping people recover a confidence in the gospel, confidence in the Bible, in my view, is the only hope of the way forward. If we appeal to ourselves as somehow morally superior than others, A, it's a lie, and B, it's the same mess. It's just, it's just, it's two sides of the same coin. Our only hope is to hold to Scripture and ask it to hold us, that God to use Scripture to hold us. Was there another question I saw? Yes, sir. Sorry? Why then do we have a full canon? Why do we go beyond the four gospels? Because, what does it say in 1 John? That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched with our own hands, that we relate to you. What does Paul say? What I have received, that the writers of the New Testament are eyewitnesses to Jesus, and they have recorded um, what he has said and what uh, and his guidance of them in the early days of the church. But it's a, a, an apostle had to be uh, an eyewitness to Jesus to be able to write about him. And that's why the canon stops with the apostles, because they're the last eyewitnesses to Jesus. That's a good question. Yes, sir. 
Well, am I, if, if I follow my usual custom, I'll answer each question an hour at a time. <laughs> Is there a thumbnail sketch or a characterization of Cranmerian historiography or say the last 30 years? Where's the work being done? Who's doing it? Where are Cranmer's papers? I know you're working on What's the status of the field? Um... Peter Newman Brooks wrote in 1989, Cramner in Context. And in it, he has a chapter, Cramner in the Clutches of Chloe, the uh, goddess of history. And that's a nice brief overview of Cramner in scholarship. Uh, the definitive biography of Cramner is by Dirk McCulloch, some 660 pages, and he also has, in his concluding chapter, uh, an overview of Cramner's, uh, people's understanding of Cramner uh, through the centuries. Um, if you want uh, the current state of Cramner research, then you'll have to wait to a couple of volumes that I'm writing come out. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry? I am on track to uh, uh, turn the uh, final volume in by December. Yeah, they gave me an unexpected three-month extension, so I, being the perfectionist that I am, I'm using it. Um, but that means it should come out in an eight. Some with Oxford, uh, it, a publication can be. Once they have the manuscript, it could take anywhere between 19 and 18 months, depending on their publishing schedule. Fourteen pages. Father, we are so grateful that without you we cannot be, that without you we cannot do, that without you we cannot love ourselves, let alone love you and others. 
that because of your love, you have come down in the midst of our mess and given us sure knowledge of how to be restored to fellowship with you and through you to ourselves and one another. Please bless this community that they might fully embrace your call on their lives individually and collectively. That they might be regularly inspired through word and sacrament to love you like you love them and to share that love in this community and abroad. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.